I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by the new Colour Revolution exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which looks at how scientific breakthroughs in the Victorian period enabled dramatic changes in the use of colour in fashion pieces, painting and other objects. You can hear one of the exhibition's curators, Charlotte Riberol, who is Professor in 19th century British literature at the Sorbonne, explaining more about the exhibition and some of the objects and ideas it explores in a special mini-episode in our podcast feed. You're listening to the LRB Podcast. I'm Malin Hay. Later in this episode, we'll have the next instalment in our series of short conversations with our writers about their favourite pieces by other writers in the LRB archive. This week, Tom Jones will be talking to Colm Tobin. But before that, joining me this week is Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite, a historian of 20th century Britain at UCL, who has written several pieces for the LRB about British cultural history, particularly in the second half of that century. In the latest issue, she reviews two books, The Poison Line by Cara McGugan and Death in the Blood by Caroline Wheeler, both of which deal with the British infected blood scandal, the historic case of medical malpractice wherein more than a thousand haemophilia patients in the UK were accidentally infected with HIV in the 1970s and 80s. Three quarters of the infected patients have since died. Along with Florence, I'm also joined by my colleague Tom Crew, who in 2018 wrote a long piece for the LRB about the AIDS epidemic, particularly as it affected the lives of gay men at the end of the 20th century. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. So Florence, I'm going to start with you. So um, would you just be able to take us through the story of the infected blood scandal? How did it happen? How were 1,200 haemophiliacs in the UK infected with HIV? So I think actually to understand how so many people with haemophilia were infected with HIV, we need to kind of go back and look at what was going on in the 70s when the the kind of the scandal before the HIV scandal was the hepatitis scandal. And all of this really goes back to this really revolutionary treatment that was developed in the 1960s and licensed in the UK in 1973 to treat haemophilia which was factor concentrates. So the most common one was factor eight. There were others that that treated less common forms of haemophilia, but factor eight was the the one that was used in by far the largest volume. It wasn't the first revolutionary treatment for haemophilia. There had been a a revolutionary in its own right treatment that had had been developed earlier in the 1960s, which was called cryo. And both of these enabled haemophiliac's blood to clot which meant that they didn't have to endure the absolutely excruciating pain and potential death that internal bleeds could cause. But cryo was always administered in hospital, took a long time to administer, you had to have the hospital stay. Um, So it was much less significant a change to haemophiliac's daily lives um, in comparison with factor eight, which... If you were a haemophiliac and you were having a bleed, you could just go to the fridge, get out your bottle, mix it up yourself and inject yourself. And very quickly, your blood would be able to clot. The bleed would be over. You wouldn't endure this excruciating pain. So it's it's factor eight, which is really the kind of vector for transmitting HIV. And long before HIV had even been kind of thought of or, or suspected, um, it was transmitting hepatitis, hepatitis B. And what we now call hepatitis C, which was then hadn't been identified and was called hepatitis non-A, non-B. So the scandal kind of goes back to the 70s when a lot of haemophiliacs were being given this factor eight by doctors who knew that it was transmitting hepatitis, hepatitis B and this more dangerous form that we now call hepatitis C. 
And despite the fact that this was very, very widely known, you know, doctors were, were conducting tests to see which different forms of factor eight from different companies and from different countries were the most dangerous in terms of transmitting hepatitis. Doctors continued to give these blood products to their patients because they were convinced that, you know, it was in their patients' best interests to have this this revolutionary treatment that, you know, could be literally life-saving if they had a, a life-endangering bleed, but was also enabling them to live lives free of the really excruciating pain that haemophilia you know, particularly severe haemophilia, can cause on a, on a daily basis to people who suffer from it. And where did the factor eight come from? So it came from a lot of different places. Um, and the tests that the doctors were doing showed that some of these places were safer than others. And the most dangerous by far was America. Um, so there were, there were four companies that produced blood products like factor eight in America, and all of them engaged in risky dangerous practices in collecting that blood. So one of the things that they did was um, some of them collected blood from high security prisons where there's very little oversight. Prisoners were known to have hepatitis and were still allowed to donate blood. Prisoners were injecting intravenous drugs and having oral sex and anal sex in the bathrooms while they were waiting to donate blood and they were still being allowed to, to donate blood. So that's one of the the things that these companies were doing. Another thing they were doing was actually actively seeking donors from gay communities in America. Um, so at one point, some of these companies were were going out and seeking gay men to donate blood because they explicitly wanted blood which had been infected with hepatitis B because they wanted to get the antibodies from that blood to make treatments for hepatitis B. But, and this is just really exemplifies um, the kind of cavalier attitude towards safety that these these companies had. When they got this blood, if they found it didn't have enough antibodies, they would just dump it straight back into the pool from which they made regular blood products like Factor Eight, um, knowing that it was contaminated with hepatitis. So in the, in the 70s, you have all of these hemophiliacs in the UK being given this contaminated blood. And then from the early 80s, when the... Well, it wasn't it wasn't known as the AIDS epidemic then. Um, it was first called gay cancer, and then it was called gay-related immune deficiency, and then only later did did the the term AIDS become um, used. And then even later than that was the HIV virus identified, and HIV came into use as a term. But as the AIDS epidemic unfolded, you really saw kind of the same thing go on as had gone on with hepatitis in the 1970s. So you saw doctors in the UK, not all of them, but some of them, and really some of the leading haemophilia doctors in the UK, downplayed the danger, denied that there was any danger, conducted tests on the haemophiliacs under their care to see what different blood products might be transmitting or potentially transmitting AIDS, and insisted that it was better for their patients, that they continue to use factor concentrates rather than ceasing to use them and and risking um, all the things that that you would risk as a haemophiliac in terms of internal bleeds or potentially even bleeds on the brain that can cause death. So you have doctors, um, many doctors in the UK, really ignoring the warning signs that were becoming increasingly obvious and increasingly, you know, very difficult to ignore. A lot of people were ignoring them um, and and telling their patients to carry on using factor concentrates, even sometimes when their patients didn't didn't want to. So how long did this go on for? I mean, at what point did either the doctors or the government or the patients themselves just stop using factor eight concentrates? Well, it was actually for quite a long time left up to individual doctors and sometimes to individual patients or their parents who who heard news of the unfolding scandal epidemic um, from the media really and insisted that they or their children should no longer be treated with factor concentrates. The Department for Health and Social Security didn't actually recommend that no unheat treated factor 8 product should be um, used until 1985 and even after that recommendation was made some places were still continuing to use up their old stocks of factor 8 so the unheat treated factor 8 which was known to be the stuff that was dangerous because heat treating had been found to kill viruses. 
we've talked a little bit about the doctors who were involved and um, you very harrowingly tell the story of a, a specific school in the UK, Trelaws, where children with haemophilia were all being taught and treated at the same time and where some of the doctors were conducting experiments on on the children to see whether hepatitis and HIV could be transmitted through blood products. But thinking more broadly about the, the whole scandal, where do you think the blame lies? I mean, is it with the doctors themselves? Is it with um, the pharmaceutical companies or with the government? I think it's very clear that there's a huge amount of blame that attaches to the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, they they were warned um, by the Centers for Disease Control in America and by others that they needed to heed the dangers of the transmission of, of diseases like AIDS through through their products and they didn't listen. They put profit above anything else. I think the, the question of the doctors is almost the most interesting one. It's the one that kind of most, in a way, engrossed me when I was writing the piece because it is clear that, you know, most or all of these doctors, they took their work very seriously. They certainly didn't get into their jobs in order to harm their patients and they did care about them. So for me, that is really interesting how how these doctors sort of ended up being, I think, I think they were morally compromised by what they had done in the 1970s often and that made it really difficult for them to respond when AIDS started to appear in the early 1980s. You know, in the 70s, they had minimised the dangers of hepatitis, hepatitis B and hepatitis non-A, non-B. They had run trials on their patients without informed consent, sometimes without seemingly any consent. Um, They had close relationships with the companies producing these products in America. Um, They hadn't informed their patients about the dangers of the treatment protocols they were using for them. And in fact, they had often administered much more of this product to their patients than they really needed because they had started using factor eight as a prophylactic rather than to treat an actual bleed. So they had been really pumping this stuff into their patients' veins. And that put them in a really difficult position when AIDS came along. And I I sort of started to think, as I was trying to kind of imagine how the catastrophe unfolded I think for some of them it was almost too morally difficult for them to face up to what they had done and the results of what they had done and and what looked increasingly likely to happen because in the early years of AIDS you know the death rate was a hundred percent many of many of these doctors you know their a large part of their patient base was children so there is, I think, a lot of culpability there among some of the doctors. Some doctors actually took much earlier action and insisted that they would try and um, exclude American products and use NHS-made products, which were in the main a bit safer, um, and use cryo, this older product, which was often much, much safer because it was made from much smaller batches of blood. Um, and in those cases, those those hospitals or treatment centres did have much, much lower rates of infection with, with hepatitis and with HIV. So there were some doctors who um, really acted quickly and saw very significantly reduced rates of infection. Um, but there are definitely some doctors to whom a significant amount of blame attaches, but they are, the, I think, the most... To me, they're, they're the most kind of interesting ones to really try and think about how they, despite their best intentions ended up doing so much harm. And what about the government? Because it's not entirely clear to me, why why were we importing so much American factor eight? Was there not enough supply in Britain? Who was responsible for the importation and why? Mm. So there was actually this moment in the late 70s where David Owen, who was a minister in the, in the Labour government at that point, taking note of the hepatitis risk, said we need to become self-sufficient in blood products. And why were British products less likely to be contaminated with hepatitis or AIDS? Two reasons. One, because British blood is donated and not paid for, whereas the companies producing blood products in America were mainly paying for that blood um, and often in very risky places like prisons uh, or they were seeking out very poor donors. 
And the other reason is that in Britain, generally much smaller pools of blood were used to produce blood products. So if you have a pool of just a few thousand donors, um, you have a much smaller chance of one of them being a carrier than if you're using a, a, a pool of you know tens of thousands of, of donors' blood. So British blood products were and were sort of known to be safer. It's actually, and this is this is one of the ways in which governments, this is just, just one of the ways in which governments over the years are hugely culpable. It's very difficult to know exactly why that commitment that David Owen made in Parliament was dropped. It seems like it was dropped probably for um, financial reasons, because it would have been expensive to invest so much in ramping up British production. Um, but a lot of the relevant papers have been mysteriously pulped or lost. And that is something that you see all through the late 70s, 80s, 90s in relation to this scandal. Um, and it's one of the just one of the ways in which um, British governments are, yeah, just bear a huge, huge part of the, the responsibility for what happened. Um, it seems that Repeatedly, decisions were taken on mainly financial grounds to continue importing American blood products. Uh, and as it became clear what the horrific results of those decisions were, successive governments entered into an institutional cover-up of what, what had gone on, um, losing or destroying papers that would have enabled us to more clearly track exactly what happened. The occasion for the two books that have just been published about this, and in a way also the occasion for your piece, is that the Infected Blood Inquiry, which was announced in 2017 and started in 2018, has begun to publish its reports. Why do you think it took so long for it to be investigated? It's been 40 years since the, the first patients were told that they had AIDS um, from infected blood. What was the what was going on in the interim for both the patients and on the governmental side? Yeah, I mean, there have been huge efforts and campaigns from the victims, from victims' families, um, and from journalists, people like um, Caroline Wheeler, who's the author of one of the books and who has been kind of campaigning in this area and, and publishing exposés for over 20 years at this point. Um, and, and they have managed to over time, recruit more and more politicians um, from both um, main political parties to their cause. Um, they've also mounted lawsuits um, and in various ways tried to put, put pressure on the government to, to hold a proper statutory inquiry that could compel witnesses to give evidence um, and that could produce a kind of, as far as possible, definitive answer as to how this happened, why it happened, and force the government to pay, pay compensation. You mentioned in the piece that in many cases the international response or response in other countries, because obviously it wasn't only the UK that was importing American plasma, that the response in those countries was swifter or more effective or more compensatory than the British government's. Um, can you describe some of the differences between Britain and other countries in that regard? Mm. So in some countries... Um, some people have actually been put on trial and in some places actually sent to prison, including some doctors in France, um, including some um, government ministers and pharmaceutical executives in places like Japan. Um, in um, Canada, there was a, a relatively swift response. There was a full inquiry held much earlier, much larger um, compensation payments and support payments to people who'd been infected, You know, many of whom faced years of not really being able to work because of their ill health, um, many of whom had families, sometimes whole families, you know, were really forced into poverty by this um, in the UK. Uh, and in some countries, there was much more of a recognition that um, proper financial support needed to be given to people much earlier. There was some support given to victims of the scandal in the UK, starting in the late 80s and early 90s. But it, the payments were pretty paltry when you consider the the financial hardship and also the uh, just the huge emotional, physical toll that the scandal took on victims. And there's another kind of, um, there's another injustice in the UK because the early 
the early financial support that was given to victims in the UK was channeled through a trust, which often made the victims feel when they went asking for help, like they were being forced to beg for help. Um, and to, I'm not sure what the best way to put this is. Well, there's actually, I, I cut this out of the piece, but there's, um, at one point there was a leak, a leak of some emails from the trust that was distributing support to the victims of the contaminated blood scandal. And it showed just how derisory and contemptuous the attitudes of some of the staff there were towards the victims. They were describing them, for example, as moaners. So Tom, just to bring you in now, alongside haemophiliacs, and obviously on a much larger scale than haemophiliacs, and in a more emblematic way, perhaps, AIDS was at the time thought of, and indeed was for a time, a disease that disproportionately affected gay men. We've heard from Florence this story of institutional cover-up, medical failure, callousness, lack of care. Is that similar to the way that the epidemic played out in the gay community? What were the similarities and maybe also what were the differences in the ways that this um, epidemic played out among gay men? Well, there are obvious similarities in that the government was too slow, that the medical profession simultaneously overreacted and underreacted. There was a lot of shutting people off in separate wards, approaching them in hazard suits and latex gloves, and there's a lot of humiliation and isolation going on in the early medical response to AIDS. And yet, a real lack of understanding about what was happening, and that's not the medical profession's fault, but there was a there was a lot of ignorance um, and a real failure to channel what information there was, to channel information about how people were getting ill, how many people were getting ill, to channel that information to government and for government to receive it properly and act on it. And because the gay community was um, a minority uh, community that faced prejudice and did not have that voice in society, it did tend to be um, undervalued. It tended to be um, written off as as a minority problem. Thatcher initially thought that this was a problem of the gay community and, and would stay that way. And therefore, in a way, the gay community was facing the consequences of its behaviours, that this was a, a kind of a kind of judgment um, from God or from or from the body on a on an inappropriate or extravagantly promiscuous lifestyle. So I think that's where where the block was. I mean, you see this in the states too when you have institutional cultural prejudice, discrimination. When a health crisis comes along, and you see this in so many ways across the world, when a health crisis strikes, it tends to be the people who are already in a vulnerable position, who are already discriminated against, who suffer. And Florence, um, how do you think the existence of, the introduction of into the public consciousness, these children, these haemophiliac children with AIDS, affected the kind of cultural conversation around around HIV AIDS? Were they stigmatised in the same way as gay men or did they change the way that that stigma was thought of? I do think that the appearance of these child victims in in the US and the UK it it did have a significant effect there's a famous case of a baby who was given a blood transfusion in San Francisco and who developed AIDS um that was really significant in making a lot of people think okay that actually this is definitely being transmitted by blood you know there's just no no way that we can continue with other other theories about what this condition is now that this has, has occurred and there was a lot of rhetoric about the innocent and the guilty victims of AIDS but it's really striking that when you look at the individual stories of young men and and boys who had haemophilia and, and who developed AIDS in the 80s what they experienced was stigma usually on a very similar kind of level. And that's not even just in those early years where nobody really knows how AIDS is being transmitted. 
you know, people people similarly were being treated in hospital by medical professionals who were all kind of barriered up. Um, they were having their their homes graffitied. Um, they were being acute. They were they were being you know shouted at in the street or or even at school. Um, so even though there is this this kind of idea certainly in the media that you have the innocent and the guilty victims the experience of the the hemophiliac victims of hiv in the 80s is one of horrific stigma they are being kind of tarred with the same with the same brush they're not they don't really get any more sympathy on an individual personal level they have the same experience of being feared and attacked do either of you think that there was there was any sense of solidarity between gay sufferers and, and haemophiliac sufferers? Is there any evidence really of kind of activism that crossed borders? Sometimes there was. There were some instances where people with haemophilia got involved in some of the campaigns, um, like ACT UP. But I think there were probably two things that meant that the activism often didn't kind of cross over as much as it might have first of all this distinction between the innocent and the victim and the and the guilty victims which obviously threw up a lot of barriers a lot of mistrust um and and i suppose connected to that you've obviously got the fact that britain is an extremely homophobic society in the 1980s and that extended to a lot of people with haemophilia as well so just because they were suffering from the the same disease didn't mean that they miraculously shared all of the societal prejudices that that they might have previously imbibed but then also I think the other thing is that the places where these different victims of AIDS lived were quite different so you have gay communities obviously concentrated in particular cities maybe even in particular parts of cities whereas men with haemophilia spread out across the country in a quite different way. So it's not necessarily, um, I think that also played some part. Tom, did you, did you in your reading about the, the kind of gay AIDS crisis, um, come across any evidence of, of sort of things going the other way, of gay men being aware of the haemophilia sufferers or, or kind of um, thinking about them in relation to themselves? Well, I think there was, as Florence says, some crossover in terms of activism. And I think there was obviously... Also, that that mistrust, and I can imagine that some haemophiliacs who'd been infected might have projected blame onto the gay community. You know, you, I, I've got this terrible disease because of because of you, because the society says of your dangerous behaviour has created this problem. But I think there was also a a tactical sense amongst gay activists that you needed innocent people in quotes, innocent people to die. You needed children to die or you needed someone famous to die in order for attention to concentrate on this crisis because what you're seeing in the early 80s is that it's predominantly the gay community which is dealing with this epidemic and the gay community is struggling to draw attention to itself. It is facing those those obstacles of, of prejudice and so there is the sense in which you need to shift the attention elsewhere in order to try and get the resources you need. I mean, famously, the New York Times didn't put um, the AIDS crisis on its front page for something like, you know, five years into the epidemic when tens of thousands of New Yorkers were dying or infected. And the sad truth is that I think that is that is what happened, that really you did need children you did need rock hudson you did need that to happen and you can see the way the the money and the action government action starts to follow from the realization that this crisis is larger than the gay community that it is not a gay specific problem um and that's when you get the shift into a probably unnecessarily large uh, campaign, both in the UK and US, and I'm sure elsewhere, where everyone was made to feel the threat. Um, there's the famous adverts in Britain, go out across the TV and terrorise the nation's children. Um, there are also similar campaigns 
doing the same thing, but nothing that actually specifically targets individual communities. And I think that's, in the end, a, a kind of counterproductive result of the drawing of attention away from marginalized communities because you get to the place where people are finding out about it or having massive resources expended on on their information base and the communities that are really suffering are still not getting the attention they deserve. It's only in 1989 that the government in Britain sponsors uh, messaging which targets the gay community. It's you know almost 10 years into the crisis. Florence, the Blood Inquiry has gathered together statements from more than 200 people, victims, the families of victims, and also doctors and other people connected with the scandal. And a lot of that is available to read online, the transcripts of these interviews. Um, You describe it in your piece as harrowing reading. And both you and Tom in your separate pieces use a lot of individual stories to try and illustrate some of the effects of this crisis. And I suppose also to make it to sort of bring home just how shockingly badly these people were being treated. As historians, actually, both of you, what do you think is the role of personal testimony or individual stories in bringing attention to or redressing historic wrongs? I mean, I think absolutely huge. There's that that famous um, quote, something like, you know, a million people dying as a statistic, but one person dying is a tragedy. Um, and I think... I do think all of us respond differently to individual stories um, and they they make those statistics kind of real and really painful. Um, and there are some of the stories and really, I, I mean, the, the um, chair of the inquiry, Sir Brian Langstaff, has paid tribute on many occasions to the victims uh, who have who have given testimony submitted witness statements and also spoken at the inquiry for the really astonishing bravery that they've shown. Um, and it is it is really incredible um, the way that they've been able to tell their stories, these incredibly painful, really devastatingly sad stories. And I think it's really, really important that they're there on the on the public record because they they just speak so loudly you know you can't you can't read them without being moved you can't hear them without being moved and in these cases where you have had large scale prejudice or silencing or um or institutional cover up you actually need those individual stories you need those individual voices to defy the silence there was the famous AIDS slogan, silence equals death. And I think there's something similar that goes for public memory. Once something is shrouded in, in silence or shame or, or deceit, the only way to combat that is by, by holding up individual testimony. And I think one of the ways in which you can see that happen is, is in the way the, the AIDS crisis in Britain really gets, for something which claimed you know, more than 20,000 lives in this country. There is no national memorial. There is very little, or there has been very little public conversation about that scale of loss, um, that scale of suffering. And you can you can see how significant that blanketing has been by the incredible response there was to the Channel 4 programme, It's a Sin. What was actually a fairly conventional dramatization of the AIDS crisis was seen by a lot of people as a kind of revelation, a kind of a huge cultural moment. And it shouldn't have taken so long for that to happen. And I know as an individual, and I think lots of gay men would tell the same story, the times I've been stood in a smoking area at a club or at a bar and you start talking to an older gay man who starts telling you about the 80s, the early 90s, the friends that they lost or the fact that they maybe lost their entire friendship group. And that's the kind of individual testimony that will cut through. And in a larger culture which doesn't want to hear those stories or, or has silenced them, that's the thing we need to remember. Do you think that there are ever cases where the use of individual stories or the focus on individual stories 
can actually detract from or distract from the overarching structural state or kind of wider implications of something like an epidemic. I'm really thinking of um, Gaëtan Dugas, who who became known as HIV patient zero um, in America mistakenly and was kind of blamed for the AIDS crisis. Um, what do you think went wrong there? Why why was that individual focus sort of negative rather than positive? Well, it's the it's as you say it's the flip side of our need for story, our need for testimony is that when something big and mysterious and scary happens that we can't explain as it did in the AIDS crisis, we try to find a story, an individual, something to attribute it to. It's almost as though we can't accept the randomness of history, of disease. Uh, you know, that's how you have a mystery, you you people want to solve it. We, it's how we have conspiracies and we saw that in the COVID pandemic too. But I think there's that was all nonsense. It, it, the the Dugas story derived from a fundamental failure to understand science, to understand randomness, to understand the fact that this disease was spreading in many different ways, in many different directions, that there was a huge incubation period, which meant that this man probably had absolutely nothing to do with, he'd probably got it from someone else five years before um, anyone knew he was ill, he knew he was ill. And that's the that's the downside of 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 not seeing the big picture and we we struggle to encompass the big picture to find those those big structural causes but i also think there's a risk in in terms of thinking about these crises only in terms of tragedy or suffering that we we lose sight of the victims, you know, these people become victims and we lose sight of their previous lives, their previous experience. And I think going to the gay example, you know, there was a whole cultural shift in which gay sex became demonized or um, people became intensely paranoid about gay sexual activity as though there was something intrinsic about gay sexual activity which had led to AIDS, when in fact it was just this terrible, random, uh, biological thing, and we and, and therefore we we can no longer see the happiness, the joy, the pleasure, the excitement. It all falls under the shadow, and it's the same for for victims of the contaminated blood scandal. In a way, you lose your individuality, you lose your history when you become a tragedy. Tom, in your piece, there was a line that really stuck out to me, which was, a way of doing justice to the past is to deal justly in the present. And Florence, thinking about the inquiry um, and specifically thinking about the issue of compensation, which has already come up in the publications that the inquiry has produced, how much do you think that, that monetary compensation can make up for such a massive injustice? What do you think the victims are actually seeking in the inquiry? Well, I suppose for some, you know, they have suffered such huge financial penalties over the years and they and their families really could do with the compensation money. But I think that there are also many victims for whom the just getting at the truth is at least as important and having a statutory public inquiry that can compel witnesses and can come to findings of responsibility is in and of itself extremely important um i suppose we see that across history people it is incredibly important to us to have the truth be known and one of the victims spoke at one point about this issue of closure and kind of questioned whether it was really you know something that you could ever really seek but i do think that getting to the truth making the truth as much as possible known and publicly stated and publicly known is vital if you're ever going to move towards anything even approaching closure. So it's it's the inquiry and the question of compensation completely go hand in hand and I don't think that one is necessarily any more important than the other. They're both vital. And just to finish off with another question related to this idea of, of dealing justly in the present as a way of doing justice to the past. 
What do you two think that we've learned, if anything, from the AIDS epidemic and from the scandal in particular? I mean, have we, as a society, as a culture and as a state, learned the appropriate lessons we've just come out of or are coming out of or perhaps still are in another massive epidemic? What lessons could be and perhaps have been or maybe have not been gleaned from this scandal? I suppose we're having a public inquiry much more quickly into COVID. It hasn't taken 40 years, so arguably a good thing. Well, uh, one of the fascinating things about COVID, about these overlaps, is that Anthony Fauci was a leading figure in the American response to the AIDS crisis, as well as then being a leading figure in the COVID crisis. So you actually do have some of the same personnel, and of course you have some of the same pharmaceutical companies. Certainly in both cases, you see the risks of pharmaceutical companies um, putting profit above people, above health. And we know in other parts of the world, in terms of both HIV and COVID, that certain populations have never really got proper access or as speedy access to the treatments they need. So there is still always the danger of uh, of the profit motive getting in the way of, of public health. I think we will have a memorial to victims of COVID. And I do think it's still amazing that we do not have a national memorial to victims of AIDS. And, and maybe there will be some kind of retrospective <laughs> reckoning with with that. Or that now in this moment, we we can at least find better ways of memorializing the dead the non the non military dead and ways of keeping alive a conversation in the culture and perhaps also ways of holding our officials to account although like you say it's possible that we still have a way to go in that regard they seem to have got away with a lot thank you both so much for joining me today it's been really interesting Thank you. Thank you very much. You can find Florence's review of two books about the infected blood scandal in the latest issue of the LRB and online. Tom's piece about the AIDS epidemic, Here Was a Plague, can be found online at lrb.co.uk. And now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a short conversation between Tom Jones and longtime contributor Colm Tobin about his favourite piece from the LRB archive. Tom began by asking Colm how he first encountered the LRB. Colm Tobin. When and how did you first come across the London Review of Books? I was a hungry 24-year-old, 24-year-old in Dublin, and uh, there was a shop in Baggett Street that prided itself on having every magazine and newspaper. The New Yorker was sporadic, but the New York Review of Books came. And I remember, I do, I mean, this is actually true, that I said to someone, I think the New York Review of Books is having a baby. And I remember thinking that was the funniest thing I'd said all year. It's having a baby. Look, look, open it up. There's a baby. And uh, it was tremendously funny because it was right inside. And I wondered, how's that going to, because I was working in magazines in Dublin, how's this going to work out? I mean, what if they both want the same piece? What if one doesn't like the other? You know, so it was clear even at the beginning that this wasn't going to work. And so that's when, I mean, I think I started to read it from the beginning, really. And I never stopped. And I never stopped admiring it and being involved with it. Obviously, it could annoy me, but that's not hard. Uh, but in general, I found there was a, I suppose, a cast of mind, a way of thinking, a, a way of approaching. You, you could see why the politics were so important, because it was a way of thinking about everything that wasn't you know, not just the literary text, but the literary text in the world, or the way in which the mind, the writer's mind, could change, could become more subtle, could become more outspoken. You, you just never knew what was coming next. And you saw that no matter what way you looked at it, it was, it was sort of a way of thinking not just about literary things, about poetry, about biography, but about the world. And is there a particular piece from the archive that stays with you? I was in Glasgow and um, I'd never been there before and I was pretty puzzled by it. And I was meant to be writing a book and there was a chapter on Glasgow, but I had done no preparation. I just went to Glasgow thinking somehow or other I'll be able to find the right people to you know, talk to in the air. You know? And I it was an early flight and I bought the LRB in some shop early that morning in Glasgow. It was a new LRB 
and um, I was meant to be making phone calls. And suddenly there was this, I, I realise now it's 10,000 word piece by Alan Bennett about Andrew Motion's biography of Philip Larkin. And I don't know what it was, but it took me over for the day and it pleased me enormously. And the reason why it pleased me was that everyone was in a state over this Philip Lark. Some people thought, well, the poems are so beautiful. You know, what will survive of us is love. Isn't that the most beautiful line? Or somewhere becoming rain, whatever that means. But that was, people were saying, well, he's such a beautiful poet. He's such a, such, he's, oh, the, the trees are coming into leaf. Their greenness is a kind of grief. You know, that would be there forever. And people would forget about his racism, his misogyny, all his wanking. People would forget all about that. And it'll just be the poet. Or other people are saying, no, no, he's a pure racist. He's a horrible man. Look at each of these women. Look at all this pornography. Look at everything about him. It's over for Philip Lark. And, and people were in that sort of state. And into the middle arrives this figure of Alan Bennett. And I thought Alan Bennett was going to be on the poetry side. I thought he was going to say, could all these sort of, you know, lefties shut up about this? This man was a great poet, a great English poet. He, you know, church going, you know, gave me my interest in churches. So you open the piece and you realise that Alan Bennett, it struck me, didn't know what he was going to say when he started, which is always a marvellous thing. And then he becomes more and more deeply indignant at the whole idea of Larkin. But the idea is not the word, because the piece is 10,000 words long, so he can't just say, I think he's a racist. I, he has to sort of go in a very Alan Bennett way, gently, carefully, using a lot of jokes, and then actually quite moralistically. So it's very surprising to see him saying um, the following, but most men, I can't do Alan Bennett's accent, but most men regard their life as a poem that women threaten. They may not have two spondees to rub together, but they still want to pen their saga untrammeled by life-threatening activities like trailing around Sainsbury's, emptying the dishwasher, or going to the nativity play. And, um, you, you know, in other words, he's, he's looking at Larkin, like the, the general business of Larkin's bachelorhood, of Larkin's sort of surly relationship to... Um, marriage or to domestic life and the way in fact that affected not only the three women involved it affected them badly but that it actually makes its way not only into his poetry but the whole sort of sense of him in the middle of course there are terribly good jokes um, <laughs> um, he loves that Philip Larkin um, used to cheer himself up by looking in the mirror and saying the line from Rebecca I am Mrs. De Winter now and um, he, he has it in for Larkin's effort to, to portray himself in the world as a recluse, as someone who just didn't want fame, who avoided fame. Adam Bennett starts to look at this. And what he does is he looks at the evidence. And what he becomes, in a way, is a sort of fair-minded Englishman, which is one of his poses. And um, he has to realise that Larkin wanted fame. Like he was, This is him. He was going to call a halt at six, meaning six honorary degrees. Only Oxford then came through with the big one, the letter getting him seriously overexcited. He actually ran upstairs, says Monica, and this is a recluse. Fame-seeking, reputation-hugging, he's about as big a recluse as the late Bubbles Rothermere. Now, you're probably too young to remember who Bubbles Rothermere was, but she was famously not a recluse. She, she was called Bubbles because of her interest in champagne. So... You know, in, in other words, what Alan Bennett is doing is not taking sides on this matter. He's offering us a cast of mind. He's doing what the LRB does best. In other words, it's a mind operating sensuously, intelligently, using nuance, going back and forth, looking again at the evidence, not being sure, being very sure. And he can do this not just because he has 10,000 words, but because he has a sense of a readership, which includes me who want this sort of response to the world, who long for it and need it, and it, it isn't anywhere else. I mean, it may exist in some other language, but I'm not sure it does. That particular cast of mind that I think that piece really represents, because this was a burning issue of the moment, this where we for or against Philip Larkin, and his piece doesn't come down on either side. It does, they wouldn't dream of doing that because it's his mind, Alan Bennett's, and his mind is working, as I say, in a particularly, it's not just nuanced, it's not just arguing with himself. He's writing 
and he doesn't know what his next sentence is going to be. And once he writes it, he, he finds that sometimes it's darting in one direction and other times he needs to pull back on that tone. So even tonally, it 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 keeps you n- not knowing what's coming next. And so I got infinite pleasure out of the piece. I ended up having a great time in Glasgow. And uh, I, I even went to a football match, which I wouldn't usually do. And um, I uh, it just cleared my mind. It just made me think, you know, if we could all start thinking like this, everything would be better. But that thought didn't last for long because the whole point of Alan Bennett and that piece is thoughts like that are just come and go but what stays is I suppose that that idea of a sort of sensuous uncertainty a sort of sort of an idea of operating not just from some sort of thin business of the mind but letting the mind wander and then seeing what you need to do to control that wonderful I'm gonna go straight away and read that piece again can I can I say one more thing yeah so Dublin oddly enough is very far from London you end up having your nose up against London. So all those names, your Andrew Motion, Alan Bell, are so far away, despite the fact that the flight just takes 50 minutes. So I thought when, when I started writing for the LRB, oh my God, I'm going to get to meet all these people. And um, so I, w- I went to a party and I saw Alan Bennett at the party in London. And I thought he desperately needed to hear me tell him how a, how great he was, and B, just tell him all about myself and just, just generally make him my friend and go on, you know, so go back to Dublin and say, guess who I know? And um, as I was doing all this, and he was, he was one of the, you know, he was standing there, he was I, exactly as I expected. He was sort of one of those big Englishmen, sort of slightly, you know, uh, bushy and um, distracted looking and wearing the wrong clothes. And um, I suddenly realised, oh, I, I think this is Perry Anderson, who's another famous writer for the LRB. I thought, I'm sure it's Perry Anderson. And he was being so polite and he was nodding and I was talking on and on. He was nodding. Eventually, what I did was I ran out into the London night, having ascertained that it was Perry Anderson and that he had gone straight over to someone, the editor, to tell the editor what had just happened. And she was nodding in a very, you know, I ran out into the London night. And that is where I still, in certain ways, remain. (laughs) That's a true story. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne, and the music is by Kieran Brunt.